You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. Uh, as you all know, and that's why you're here, we're talking about the case of Julius Nepper Rosenberg tonight. Uh, and... and this is an appropriate time to talk about this. We are now, this summer will be the 70th anniversary of the beginning of the atomic age. 1945, the first explosion of an atomic bomb in Alamogordo, New Mexico, this coming July will be the 70th anniversary. And of course, four years later, you get the first Soviet bomb in August of 1949, almost exactly four years later. No one in the United States expected this to happen. And of course, instead of just saying, hey, the Soviets may have been pretty smart in this whole science thing. Or perhaps they developed a system that was pretty basic when it came to physics at this point. Instead, everyone said, nope, they're too dumb. They must have stolen it from the United States. And so the, the search for spies began. It didn't have to go far. It was actually, there were spies spying on the Manhattan Project. Uh, too easy to get caught up in the McCarthy hysteria of the time and say that anyone accused of being a spy, this is a witch hunt. But there were true atomic spies. Klaus Fuchs is one of the most famous. Ted Hall, the 19-year-old wonderkind who provided information to the Soviet Union. And of course, in 1950, a couple, a man and a woman, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, were arrested for being part of a broader spy ring to provide atomic information to the Soviet Union. Three years later, they were executed on their 14th wedding anniversary. If it had ended there, this would just be another interesting footnote in history. Another period that we would talk about as being an interesting spy story or an interesting story in American legal history. But it didn't end there. And what makes it so interesting is the evolution of this case over the years. All right? We didn't know the whole story back in 1953 when they were executed. More information has consistently come out over time. At the beginning, though, America was divided. Most people on the American left thought the Rosenbergs were unfairly executed. They believed that anti-Semitism or anti-communism or this McCarthy hysteria led to their execution. Most people on the American right thought, yeah, fry those commies. All right, they'd provided the bomb. Eisenhower very calmly said that you know, it could cost millions of American lives because of the ability of the Soviet Union 
to launch an atomic attack against the United States. That dichotomy, that separation of the American population remained true for several decades where there were still stalwarts holding out the fact that Rosenbergs were innocent, that these were people that were railroaded because of the time period, because of their Jewishness, because they were part of the Communist Party at one point. And bit by bit, piece by piece, new information came out. You have the memoirs of Nikita Khrushchev, which were released long after he was dead, but hinted at the fact that Stalin had told Khrushchev that the Rosenbergs had indeed provided important information for the development of the Soviet bomb. You had a, a, a revelations of a man named Boris. Boris, but we say Boris. Uh, Brockovich, who was actually the head of the plant that developed plutonium for the Soviet atomic bomb program, saying, you executed the Rosenbergs for no reason whatsoever. They gave us nothing. So little bits of information here and there. But it wasn't until 1995 that two major events blew the story wide open. One was the final declassification of a program back during the Second World War known as Venona. And Venona was a decryption of the Soviet secret diplomatic cables that were going back and forth from the United States, Canada, and Great Britain to the Soviet Union. And Venona actually showed us that at least Julius Rosenberg was a spy. At that point, there was very little conversation because he appeared over and over and over again within the Venona transcripts. And he had code name, several actually, but the most famous being code name Liberal. <laughs> Later on, he would be King and several others. But there really wasn't a question at that point that, it, that Julius certainly did provide information to the Soviet Union. That same year, in a year about 95 and 96, a man named Alexander Vasiliev, former KGB officer who now became a historian, actually a journalist inside Russia, was given access to KGB archives. And with this access, he wrote many, many, many pages and filled up many notebooks of KGB files on American espionage activities by the KGB, actually at the time the NKVD, during the Second World War. And so not only do we have the American decrypts of Soviet conversations, but we have the files of Soviet intelligence itself pointing to the Rosenbergs, actually both of them this time, and we'll talk about that later, as agents of the Soviet government. Right? So that's in 1995. And there's, there's a key turning point. And, and Mike Mirpool, who just walked in the back, yay, Mike will actually tell you that was a key turning point in his understanding of his parents' relationship to the Soviet government. Then you have a book by a man named Alexander Feksikov. He was the handler for the Rosenbergs, or at least he claims to be the handler for the Rosenbergs. In 2001, a book came out in which he talked about this relationship. You get a little bit of a different view from him. He said that the bomb really wasn't helped very much by what Rosenberg gave him that the information passed along to the Soviet Union did not do a lot to help the, the Soviet bomb program. Same year, 2001, a book came out by a man you're going to hear from tonight called The Brother, which had arguably the most groundbreaking revelation of the Rosenberg case, in that the thing that really sealed their fate in their trial in 1953, the testimony from David Greenglass that, that Ethel Rosenberg typed up the notes that were given to Julius and passed on to the Soviet Union was made up, a complete fabrication, a lie. That's the thing that sent her to the electric chair. And in 2001, the man who said it at the trial recanted everything. Actually said it was probably his wife, Ruth, that did the typing. 
a game changer. And certainly for Mike Mirapol and for Sam Roberts and for those of us that study this period, it, what? I mean, this is the one piece of evidence that caused a woman to be executed. Right? And it was complete nonsense. Right? Since that, you've had, in 2008, grand jury trans transcripts that have been declassified and released. Not all of them. We're still waiting for some key grand jury transcripts to be released. But these grand jury transcripts actually further this story, the lie about typing, showed that Ruth uh, Greenglass, David Greenglass's wife, consistently lied during her testimony. And then finally, in 2008, uh, the co-defendant of the Rosenbergs, you may not know that, it wasn't just Julius and Ethel on trial in 1950. A man named Morton Sobel was their co-defendant. He came out and said, yeah, Julius was a spy. He was best friends with Julius going back to their school days. He was somebody that both of the sons, both Mike Muirpool and Robbie Muirpool, had trusted completely with his word. And when that happened, when he came out and said that, that was the final nail in the coffin about was Julius a spy. Now, I'm not saying atomic spy, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but was Julius a spy? Absolutely. And again, even Mike Muirpool tonight, I'm not going to put words in his mouth, I think he will agree that that is essentially fact at this point. So let me introduce you to both Sam Roberts and Michael Muirpool. So Sam, to my immediate left, has been the New York Times urban affairs correspondent since 2005. He is a host of the New York Times Close Up, an hour-long weekly news and interview program on New York One, the all-news cable channel, produced in association with the New York Times. And that started back in 1992. He's also hosted weekly podcasts for the Times called The Caucus and Only in New York. His magazine articles have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The New Republic, and New York. He is a co-author of a biography of Nelson Rockefeller, published by Basic Books in 1977. He's also the author of Who We Are, A Portrait of America, published in 1994, and Who We Are Now, published in 2004. And I believe both of those were based on U.S. Census documents. Also, in, in 2009, uh, published A Kind of Genius about making government work. And an anthology of his podcast entitled Only in New York was published by St. Martin's Press in November 2009. Another book, Grand Central, How a Train Station Transformed America, was published in January 2013. And A History of New York and 101 Objects, sounds fascinating. Uh, is that released yet or about to be released? Uh, just out. Just out. All right. And of course, he is here. Not only I mean, we really like that he's here, but he's here because he's the author of The Brother, The Untold Story of the Rosenberg Case, which came out first in 2001. And then there was a new edition very recently, uh, just in 2014, just last year. To his left is Michael Mirapool. He is the elder son of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. When Michael was seven years old in 1950, his parents were arrested. In 1953, when Michael was 10, they were convicted and executed for conspiracy to commit espionage and passing secrets to the Soviet Union. Michael and his brother Robbie were eventually adopted by the lyricist and musician Abe Mirapool and his wife Anne. Both Michael and his brother took their name. Michael graduated from Swarthmore College before going on to graduate work at Keynes College and Cambridge University, and he did his doctorate in the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a bastion of right-wingers. Um, this is sarcastic. Where he received his PhD in economics in 1973. In 2008, he retired after 38 years as professor of economics and chair of the department at Western New England University, a small private college in Springfield, Massachusetts. He's the author of several books. One he wrote with his brother Robbie called We Are Your Sons, published in 1975. He separately edited a complete edition of his parents' prison correspondence, The Rosenberg Letters, which came out in 1994. 
1998, and I love the title of this, he authored Surrender, How the Clinton Administration Completed the Reagan Revolution. I'm sure you're looking forward to another round of Clinton. And then he's also the author of Principles of Macroeconomics, Activists versus Austerity Policies, which he co-authored with uh, uh, Howard Sherman in 2013. Welcome, both of you. Thank you for taking the time to come talk about things here at the Interstice Spy Museum. So let's start with a relative softball. Uh, I want to talk about your initial thoughts when it comes to the, the time period we're dealing with here, the, the execution, 1953. You write in your book that you were six years old and you actually were at the funeral procession through New York of the Rosenbergs. And of course, I won't, I, I, you've said this over and over again, but I have a hard time really embracing the idea that you did not want to strangle David Greenglass in his sleep every chance you got. Can you talk a little bit about, but I would. Maybe, maybe you're just a more peace-loving guy than I am. Um, but a little bit about the, the initial reaction. You're both very young, but how this kind of, how this event has shaped your lives. Well, let me just say first, I was six years old, as you say. It was my sixth birthday growing up in Brooklyn. My father took my sister and myself to the corner of our block, Kings Highway and Rockaway Parkway, to see the funeral procession go by. I never asked him why. What was the purpose? Which side he was on? How could the Jews do this to America? How could America do this to the Jews? But he wanted me to see history. The same way, a couple of years later, he made me sit down and watch the Army McCarthy hearings, wanted me to see history unfolding. But I was at the New York Times many years later, 1983, when Ron Radosh's book came out about the case. Uh, we were writing book reviews that said there was news in this book, and an editor came over to me and said, well, if there's news, why don't we write a news story? And it fell to me, unfortunately, as the new kid on the block, to do that. Uh, and I went to Peter Keyes, who had covered the case for us. I went to Roy Cohn, who was still alive and obviously intimately involved in the case. And I said, naturally, with great pretentiousness, I want to solve this case. I don't want to just write about the book. You know, what's the smoking gun? And they all said, the smoking gun is the testimony of David Greenglass. And I tried to set out and find him and get him to talk. And it took about 15 years before Well, it took a long that. time. Yeah. And with uh, Michael's help, ultimately, I found him and then took a long time to persuade him to talk. Well. To talk about the 1950s, I always tell this anecdote. It's in my book, so I might as well tell it. I was eight years old living with my grandmother on the upper west side, uh, Laurel Hill Terrace, overlooking the Harlem River, where they were building the Major Deegan Expressway. And uh, I knew that there was a newspaper called the National Guardian that was on my parents' side. And I also knew a little bit that there was a newspaper called The Compass that was sort of liberal. So I made friends on the block, and I told a kid named Phil and his parents that, you know, who I was. My name was Michael Rosenberg. And uh, I said, you know, they're innocent. And if you read these newspapers, you'll find out they were very nice to me. So I said, this is great. You know, I can help my parents. So the next kid I tried was a guy named Lawrence. And I was watching TV at Lawrence's house. And I... Uh, I said my name, and she said, are you Julius? I interrupted. I said, yes. And if you read the national, she cut me off. I don't want to hear about this. And then as we're t sitting there watching TV, I hear these strange conversations going on. The older brother is saying, look, Lawrence, are you an American? 
And as soon as the clock turned to six, it was 10 minutes fast, the TV show's going on. TV show's over, time for you to go. And as I leave, she's saying to Lawrence, that's the last of your communist friend. Now, this woman might have been very nice to her children. She might have been very nice to lots of people. She was terrified that a nine-year-old would contaminate her son. That's the 1950s to me, mm -hmm. in a nutshell. Yeah. Let's point out, as Vince told me earlier, this was the headquarters of the Communist Party USA back in the 1940s. You're in it. This building. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're sitting in it. What, one thing I want to do at the very beginning of this conversation is challenge or at least question an assumption that uh, we even have in the title of this program, this idea of pluralizing Rosenbergs in treating Julius and Ethel as an entity. And, and I think that it, it, we need to kind of talk about should we be treating them the same? Uh, and really this question is about Ethel. The question is, you know, was Ethel a spy? You know, is, that's something I think we need to, before we even get any further in this, we need to tackle that broader question. You know, it, there is some evidence that suggests that she was involved in some degree, or she certainly would knew about it. The, the word they like to use was cognizant. Mm -hmm. Did she know about it? But in your opinion, what level, forget should she have been executed. We'll, we'll get to that step. But what level was Ethel involved in spying for the Soviet Union? Uh, well, the, the question, as you say, the word when the uh, Justice Department, when the FBI was going to question them in the death house, the question asked to be asked of Ethel was, are you cognizant of your husband's activity? The fact that they were asking that question moments before she was being put to death is evidence enough that there was enough skepticism of it. But what fascinated me and was evidence of the government's incredible cynicism was one of the last interviews I conducted for my book was with Bill Rogers, who was uh, former Secretary of State. At the time, he was the Deputy Attorney General of the United States. And I asked him the genesis of the case. You know, how did this play out? Uh, you know, I said, Isn't, did it work out pretty much the way you wanted it to? You indicted the Rosenbergs, you convicted them, you executed them. And he said, no, that's not really what we wanted. What we wanted to do was indict them and use the leverage of indicting Ethel to get Julius to talk, right. to get Julius to name names. We knew the other names because of the Bonona tapes, as Vince said. We knew there were other people, but we were hiding that. We didn't want to admit to the Soviets that we knew those names, so we wanted to bring it out in another way. We wanted to get Ethel to talk. You use the word leverage. Leverage. We wanted, component. we indicted her in a capital offense to get her to talk. So I said, well, what went wrong? And Rogers paused for a moment and he said, she called our bluff. And what that said was the Justice Department of the most powerful democratic nation on earth was bluffing when it indicted convicted and executed this woman, who I think by no means was innocent, but certainly was not legally guilty of espionage. Uh, and how could a government be more cynical than that? It's hostage-taking. It's as simple as that. It's hostage-taking. Um, I can go back a little bit towards yep. your first question. When Robbie and I started our struggle in 1974, we were 1,000% convinced that not only were our parents not spies, but that David Greenglass had 
falsely confessed to being a spy because they were going to put him in the death house if he didn't. Turns out we were wrong. And we, over time, force of evidence caused us to change our minds. Um, we began to change our minds at least speculatively with the release of the Venona documents in 1995. Probably very few people have seen this, but our Annie and my daughter Ivy did a documentary film on our, my parents' case. And on the DVD are some extended commentaries. And, and, this and is let me pause and say this is definitely worth seeing. Oh, it, is, it is like a whole movie, uh, but it is a wonderful thing to see from that family perspective. So in one of the extras on the DVD, which most people don't see, I speculated on whether Venona, which was this decryption by the United States National Security Agency of secret Soviet cables back and forth between New York, um, whether they were accurate or not, whether it was real or whether it was a CIA disinformation camp, which, by the way, it could have been, right? I mean, there's no certainty that just because the CIA says something, it's true. And that was where our skepticism came in. But I, I did speculate. I said, you know, there's a thing called Occam's Razor. And with Occam's Razor, you might lean towards assuming that there's something there. But we weren't about to do the CIA's work for them. So we waited until, A, Morty spoke. But also, Walter Schneer published a book called Final Verdict, which, in my opinion, tells the final story. Final Verdict says, yes, my dad got involved probably in late 1941. Uh, he was active right up till about February 1945 when the FBI did a black bag job on a Communist Party headquarter, found his tardy card, told his government agency where he was working that he was a communist, and they fired him. And the Soviets said, hey, they might be interested more in just his being a communist. Maybe they think he's connected to us. So they shut him down. And they said, you don't, you're not going to have any more relationship with your people. We're going to switch their handlers. And that's why, ultimately, I have come to believe that the Green Glass has told a partial truth. Yes, Julius recruited them, but no, the big deal of passing a diagram of the implosion-type atom bomb, that was between green glasses and the Soviets. My father wasn't there. Well, let's, let's get to that. We'll get to that eventually. Let, let's deal with your mom, because let's get me, because I think this might be the lowest hanging fruit as far as I'm concerned. I mean, if you look at the evidence, talk about code names, right? Code names in Venona, you've got Liberal, you've got Caliber, David Greenglass, you've got Osara Asa for Ruth Greenglass, and even later on, they change the code names, except Ethel never had one the first time, and she doesn't get one the next time. She's mentioned in Venona as Ethel, right, as, you know, Liberal's wife, Ethel. Um, I've got something I want to ask as a follow-up to this, but do either of you think that how involved was she? I know she was cognizant. There's, there's probably no question that she knew and probably approved of what Julius was doing, but was she involved? Yeah, I, my guess is that she was a supportive wife. Let's try to remember, it's the 1940s and the 1950s. It's a very traditional approach to marriage and the family. When they got married, you know, very soon after that, she stopped working for a living. You know, I was born, and then that was it. Um, from the time I remember walking around the house, say, when I was four, and she was pregnant with Robbie to the time they were arrested, she didn't have a job. She was a full-time mom. And 
Julius was her lead. You know, he was the breadwinner. He was the decision maker. But she agreed with his politics. There's no question about that. And therefore, I assume she was supportive of his work for the Soviets. I can't for a minute believe that she didn't know about it. She was a committed communist, as Michael says. Ideologically, she was certainly supportive. She was supportive as a wife. There is evidence through Venona and other sources that she was involved in recruiting her brother, David Greenglass, uh, asking Ruth to broach the subject to him at uh, Los but Alamos. Let's just make sure we realize what this means is she's sitting in a room while Julius is right. asking right. Ruth Correct. to do it. Correct. Yeah, I was going to ask you because... Uh, and not saying, no, no, don't involve you know, right. my brother. In Julius's own words, in, in a write-up that he writes for Soviet intelligence, he writes about himself in the third person, but he does include his wife was there talking to Ruth, talking about involving him and would he be interested. And so Ethel is brought into this to a degree by Julius as not only as somebody was sitting there, but almost as an act, at least in that one specific thing, as at least part of the conversation. Yeah, and although remember that the Soviet version of that, not Venona, which right. is decrypted mm -hmm. and who knows how accurate it is. Right. The Soviet version of it just says Ethel told Ruth to tell David to be careful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are, there are so many variations of the wording. Right. You know, some people say that where it says that Ethel does not work, it could either mean she does not work for us or she does not have a job. You know, it could be either way. And the whole question of the typing, which I'm sure we'll get into, whether or not she ever typed, whether there was anything to type at all, uh, you know, that, that's a whole open question. But, but the fact is, you know, did she commit any overt act in, in furtherance of a conspiracy? Uh, there's very little evidence of right. that altogether. Uh, and, and if, you know, as, as my book says, if David had told the truth uh, that he didn't remember that she had typed, then she would have been convicted. Well, it all depends what Ruth would have said. I mean, Ruth's grand jury testimony says nothing about typing. Correct. This is something that Ruth and, and remembers we, two weeks before the trial. Right. Well, and and when Ruth remembers this, you know, we'll get it. I don't want to jump the gun, but we'll, so to speak. But we'll, uh, Ruth remembers this because Roy Cohen and other prosecutors in the FBI is sitting her down two weeks before the trial when she can still be charged and when David has not yet been sentenced and says, look, in effect, we don't have enough about on Ethel yet. What else can you remember that she was involved in? Now it's possible, possible that Ruth reconstructs the thing in her mind and remembers that Ethel did the typing. That is possible. It's also possible she made it up. And what happened was they then go to David and said, your wife just told us that Ethel did the typing. And David says, well, I'm not going to call my wife a liar. If Ruth says Ethel did the typing, then she must have done the typing. So David gets on the witness stand and testifies that Ethel did the typing, and then Ruth follows him on the witness stand and corroborates David's testimony. And the jury says, wait a minute, here is the woman's brother testifying that his own sister did the typing, it must be true. And she goes to the electric chair. Well, and the sad, the sad irony is that if you wanted to say who is more guilty of espionage, 
Ruth or Ethel? It's Ruth. Ruth is significantly more Ruth guilty. was the courier. Ruth went down there. Ruth brought information back. And, and, and Ruth and, and David both left out an awful lot of the story that Walter discovered when he read this book called The Haunted Wood, mm -hmm. which went into the KGB-owned documents. Right, which is co-authored by Alexander Vasiliev, who right. we talked about the notebooks. And Alan Weinstein. Yeah. I, I mean, you look at the, I mean, Ruth is not even indicted. She's completely gets off scot-free, uh, and it's due to the testimony of David and her testimony. And, and most legal historians and, and political historians say, without that testimony, there's no way Ethel Rosenberg is convicted and executed. Probably no way Julius is convicted. Well, if neither of them testify, there's no case. And that was the lever that David had with the FBI. Now, he's a bit of a braggart, a big mouth. The day after he gives a statement to the FBI, in effect, confessing, implicating his wife and my father, gets up the next day, says, hell no. Tomorrow I'm going to plead not guilty and say I never knew, met you guys. But then the lawyer comes to him and says, look, you already talked. You know, you, your best bet is to make a deal. So he says, okay, tell her if they touch a hair on her head, I'll commit suicide and they'll have no case. Right, on my wife's head. Yeah, right. on, on Ruth's head. The first person he implicates, if you look at the transcript of the interviews, is his wife. Not Julius, not Ethel, but his wife said, oh, my wife came to New Mexico and asked me to be a spy. Doesn't mention anything about Ethel or Julius. And, I, and let's talk about the trial. And I think that people have gone over this several times before, but I think reading it, I'm no lawyer but, and no legal scholar either, but I was blown away by how completely inept the legal team was for both, actually talked about David Greenglass's lawyer. If he had just kept his mouth shut himself, they would have had very little against Greenglass. But certainly the, the legal team for, for the Julius and Ethel, um, I wanna, how important is the decision to impound the evidence, quote unquote, the sketches that David Greenglass gave, uh, to give them more weight? So the story behind this is that the, the, the supposed atomic spying, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, was because David Greenglass, who worked at Los Alamos, passed sketches, or at least allegedly passed sketches, to Julius Rosenberg, which were eventually handed off to the Soviet Union. At the trial of Julius Nethel Rosenberg, the defense team, who was arguing that these sketches were nonsense anyway, weren't that important, weren't very good, decided, because of national security considerations, that we shouldn't let anybody see these, that we should impound this information. And that seems like such a paradox, such contradictory well, information. Well, here's, here's what you have to understand. Now that we know the true story, I mean, Sam and I might differ about this, but now that we know what I think we know, my parents and Manny Block were in an incredibly difficult position. How do you plead half guilty? Yeah. How do you say, hey, you know, 40% of what's in the indictment is true. You know, I did this, this, and this, but this really serious stuff, this atomic stuff, I didn't have anything to do with that. That's, that's a pack of lies. How do you do that? So the way they tried to do it was they tried to say, look, Greenglasses are big top spies, they're traitors, everything else, and they've sold the FBI a bill of goods in order to lessen their culpability. And you know what? That's true. Even though it didn't work at the trial, that's actually true. For years, my brother and I would rail against Manny Block and say, why didn't he just say that Harry Gold was a fantasizer, David Greenglass was lying, there was no atomic espionage except for Klaus Fuchs? Well, guess what? That wasn't true, and Manny, as a good lawyer, obviously having talked to my father, knew that. 
So I think they did the best they could, yeah. given the circumstances. Although there was no cross-examination of Harry Gold. Because he said he never met my father. Right. See, the point is, it's Gold, Greenglass, and Yakovlev, who we now know was named Yatskov. Not that that matters anywhere. Um, those three were involved in a conspiracy, an atomic conspiracy, my father had nothing to do with well, it. Well, um, we can differ about that, but the worst thing the prosecution did was put Harry Gold and David Greenglass together before the trial to get their story yeah. straight. So that <laughs> they, they testified that Harry Gold comes and says to David in Albuquerque, I come from Julius, and produces the half of the Jell-O box. Now, what spy in his right mind would say, I come from Julius. I mean, this is a secret coded message. You know, of all the people to say, I come from Julius. You know, he would obviously make up some code name if he's handing him half of a Jell-O box. He's not going to use the real name of the guy who gave him the other half. I mean, that is just ludicrous. But they put the two of them together in a room to get that story straight. David Greenglass had never used that before. Harry Gold had never used that before. But they wind up corroborating each other's testimony at the trial. Now, the sketch, you can look at the sketch and say this is really a child's drawing of an atomic bomb. But what it did for the Russians, presumably, is persuade them that the bomb we were making was an implosion bomb, that it was a bomb that was going to contract plutonium and make it blow up into a big bomb. I won't attempt to explain how that works. Well, now you're uh, talking my language. Okay, uh, well, okay. So. <laughs> but, but the Russians, as it turns out, were even more paranoid than we were. And they didn't really believe, Stalin didn't believe their own scientists. So when their scientists said, oh, they got nothing from the Americans, that's because their scientists wanted to claim full credit for what they were doing. So you can't trust their scientists. Stalin didn't trust their scientists. So he wanted to make a replica of the American bomb. So anything that was confirmatory coming from Americans, whether it was from Harry Gold or, or David Greenglass or anyone else, of course the basic information was coming from Klaus Fuchs and Ted Hall. This is but very anything important. that yeah. was confirmatory was helping let's, the Russians. Let, let's 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 not trust the Russian scientists. Let's talk. Let's trust the American scientists. Um, a couple people who worked at the Manhattan Project, Glenn Seaborg, who actually discovered plutonium, uh, said that the only real secret behind the atomic bomb was whether it would work, and that was shown to be true in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, Arnold Kramish, who was a Manhattan Project scientist, a friend of David Greenglass actually, uh, was asked how much did the Greenglass information matter? He said not one iota allowed them to get further. Well, there's another quote which I happened to stumble across a couple of months ago. It was declassified. It's not exactly clear when, but General Groves, who right. was the head of the Manhattan Project, testifying secretly before Congress in 1954, said what the Rosenbergs contributed was minimal he said, irrespective of its value, talk about mixing metaphors, he said, the Rosenbergs deserve to hang. And then he said, therefore, don't release this. Right, we don't, don't let anybody want, know about We that. don't want General Groves to be publicly saying this. All right. So, uh, so Philip Morrison, another Manhattan Project scientist, said the sketches were a, quote, caricature of the bomb. Henry Lynchitz, who was a Manhattan Project scientist, said that the sketches were garbled, ambiguous, and highly incomplete. Hans Betta 
who was one of the most famous Manhattan Project scientists, said the sketches made no difference for the Soviet bomb. Groves said it minor value was his direct quote. Um, in the drawing itself, at the trial, wasn't the same drawing that was handed off to the Soviets. This is a drawing that's produced years later. From memory. From memory, with a lot of information already gathered from this information. And even David Greenglass, at his own parole board hearing, said that he provided nothing really for the Soviet Union. So that's on one hand. Now, on the other hand, exactly what you were arguing in that case. Is this confirmation of what these Soviet scientists were thinking? Does this show that Klaus Fuchs was not a double agent, was actually providing real information? Um, could this have actually delayed the Soviet bomb by forcing them to repeat what the United States was doing and not come up with new and innovative ways in the late 1940s that scientists had developed? Discuss amongst yourselves. I mean, this is obviously a, a heated topic. You have people who say one thing, that this is nonsense, these sketches were garbage. Other people saying, obviously, uh, that they were very important. Do we trust people? like Soviet espionage agents, who of course are going to say that these sketches were key. Is that, that completely well, they're, justifies They're going to say it's key because yeah. they were the ones who got hold of it, and it's to their credit that they did. The same way the scientists are going to say it didn't matter because the scientists did all the work. I'm well, not sure Richard we'll ever know. I think it is Richard Rhodes told me that he thought Greenglass contributed a lot. In his book, he says less so. Yeah, and, uh, I, and in I a think, letter to me, he says less. So. <laughs> I think, you know, that you can make a case it was confirmatory uh, that it did confirm to Stalin that they were proceeding along the lines that, that Fuchs and Hall told them to do. And did that save the Soviets weeks, months? It didn't save years, uh, but it told them they were proceeding in the right direction. How much that helped, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm good. You're good? All right. But, I'm but not there a, is a more fundamental I'm question. I'm not a historian of yeah. science. There's a more fundamental question here that I think, you know, we, we're not overlooking, but maybe have overlooked before. Uh, and that is when you look at this case, and we're talking about atomic espionage, which is a very important thing because, you know, it is, it is Irving Saipol, the prosecutor, who says that Ethel Rosenberg sat at the typewriter and struck the keys blow by blow against her country. And you have Irving uh, Kaufman, the judge, this somewhat maniacal judge, who in his sentencing virtually accuses the Rosenbergs of starting the Korean War. Not virtually, well, explicitly. Uh, and because the Russians now have the atomic bomb in their arsenal. But you've got to go back and look at what the Rosenbergs were charged with. And again, I say this more narrowly and specifically to Julius. He was charged, let's separate the two of them, with conspiracy to commit espionage. And I think there is very little legal question that he was guilty of that charge. Not atomic espionage, which is nowhere mentioned in the indictment, but conspiracy to commit espionage. I think we should all agree that he was guilty of that. Yes, and, and that is the change that we have experienced over the years in trying to figure this thing out. Um, namely, from going from, you know, you start with the trial which is so obviously fraught with perjuries, et cetera. So you say, Wait, well, in, including obviously. Including Julius. Yes. 
Right. Well, no, I'm, I'm not trying to challenge you. I'm, I'm just saying. Yeah. You, you don't know you, that. We right. don't know that. You can frame a guilty man, is what it says. Yeah. Yes. No question. I guess the real issue that. The, you know, this was called a debate, and everybody in the audience is probably saying, hey, where's the how, debate? How come they agree? How come yeah. they, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe we should get to that. I don't know if you want to ask a leading question or let me go to work. Oh, I, well, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let, let me I, I ask her, I think that a, there's a question that's coming up that I'm gonna, I ask, uh, those of you who've been here before, I tend to ask of anyone who's an author in the past, and it's about sources. It's about, uh, especially in this case, where a... a, a particularly biased source, is a key contributor to, to your book specifically, The Brother. I mean, The Brother is a fascinating and incredible, you've got to read it. We have it in the back. He'll sign it, get it. It's awesome. The Brother is a fascinating book because of the hours and hours and hours that you spent with David Greenglass and, of course, all the work you did on top of that. The question, of course, is as for source material, how do you believe a single word that this person has been lying his entire life has said to you, and how do you write a book based on that information without you know, completely disregarding every single word that he said? Very says. good question, and the problem was, first of all, getting him to talk without knowing what he was going to say. And the reason he ultimately talked after years of nagging was because he was desperate, somewhat like he was back in 1950 when he was arrested. This time he wanted money. And let me tell you, uh, and Michael and I have discussed this before, I was very reluctant <clears throat> on two counts to make any kind of financial arrangement with him, which was ultimately to split the advance, and that was all. Uh, one, I didn't want to share money with him, uh, period. Two, professionally, I don't pay people for information in, at all. I work on a daily newspaper. I don't pay people. I write books. I don't pay people. So one of the things I did was go to a friend of mine, Nick Pileggi, who writes books with and about mobsters all the time. And I said, look, what do I do? I, I'm in this moral dilemma. And Nick said, you are paying in part for the guy's time. You're paying in part for the guy's story. You're not going to get it any other way. And you have to pay. The best way to pay is 50-50, split it down the middle, and then you can take what he says at face value or not, but you're not going to get this any other way. And history, in a case like this, probably more than dealing with a mobster, history has some sort of claim on what he has to say, and you ought to find out what it is. Then the question becomes, do you believe it or not? Well, I thought he would engage in a great deal of self-justification, self-validation. He did not. The man was, died this past year, was a total narcissist. He did not engage in self-justification. He dug himself in deeper and deeper and deeper. My friend David Halberstam read a manuscript of the book, and I said, what do you think of this guy? And David thought about it for a little while, and he said, the guy is a schmendrick. And I went to Leo Rostin to, to get the exact definition. A, a schmendrick is an apprentice schlemiel. <laughs> and, and that's exactly what the man was. And here he is admitting, without one iota of remorse or self-doubt, that he lied about the single most incriminating evidence that he delivered against his sister. 
and no second thoughts, no, I wish I hadn't, no, I wish I could do it over again, no, I've had sleepless nights. And he says, well, look, I had a choice between my sister and my wife, he said, and I sleep with my wife. I don't sleep with my sister. And, you know, do I believe him? Well, under the circumstances, how can you imagine a guy is making stuff up like this? He's not making money off the book. Whatever I sell or don't sell, he's not making any more money off it. If it becomes a movie, which it isn't, he doesn't make any more money off it. He gets an upfront thing, half of what I get, and that's it. Uh, so why, what is the motivation for making himself look worse and worse and worse? As, as Rebecca West said, talking about the testimony of, of a brother against his sister in a case like this, she said, this is the evil twin of incest. Uh, and, and in the Woody Allen movie, you know, when, when uh, Woody Allen is, is referring to uh, this oleogenous brother played by uh, Tony Roberts, I guess, you know, he says, oh, I love him like a brother, David Greenglass. I mean, he becomes a punchline. And, and, you know, in this book, he becomes one even more so. So I couldn't believe he'd be making it up. I treated it all with some skepticism. And I said, there's no way of knowing whether he's telling the truth or not. But I Well, you do have uh, some possibilities. For example, you, you say that you never caught him lying to you. Well, at that, that time, there are certain occasions since when he said he stopped spying, and I believe he did not stop spying afterward. I think he kept spying. Yeah, that well, is one thing which yeah. I believe... But what about the fact... Uh, I, there's, there's a potential for this degenerating into inside baseball. I yeah. want to warn you, and I'm going to do my best, do my best not to. But it, I think it's extremely important to understand that um, David Greenglass didn't tell you about what went on in the f December of 1945. In December of 1945, according to a passage in The Haunted Woods, which was one of the central things well, of Walter Schneer's book, When did that uh, typing take place, if yeah. it took place at all? Was it September or was it December? Well, that December, there's no, there's no evidence of any re interaction with my parents in December. Instead, right. there's supposed to be a meeting between David or Ruth on December 21st. And what's, why is this important? It's important because that sketch that we've been talking about doesn't get to Moscow till December 27th. Now, Sam, you've got that in a footnote, mm -hmm. but you don't tell the reader that that's the sketch. It's just sitting there in a footnote. There's some report from December 27th. At least in your paperback, you should have taken the, the due diligence to explain mm -hmm. Maybe how... So. Well, and this is the, the, that may be right. The, That's the, fine. The but, but again, if you're looking at the forest rather than the trees, and that's a perfectly, well, perfectly legitimate tree, uh, you again get to the point that Julius was involved in recruiting David in atomic espionage, number one, and number two, that the legal charge was conspiracy right. to commit right. espionage, which we agree if he was guilty of. So the, the conversation, to get it outside of baseball a little bit, the conversation is, if the sketch was transmitted in December of 1945, that makes it very difficult for Julius to be the conduit behind transmitting that sketch. And for Ethel to have right, done, right, done the typing. 
So it's not as it's a little nitpicky in a degree that your broader argument of was there still conspiracy to commit espionage, yeah. but in the broader atomic espionage question, yeah. and that sketch being the key behind sentencing them to death yes. as atomic spies, it does play a role in this conversation. Although I would imagine, although maybe not, if they were accused of conspiracy to commit atomic espionage, the recruitment might have been some sort of overt act toward that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there is some counterfactual history involved in this. And the idea of, but you, you can safely think about counterfactual history by looking at the other people who were convicted of espionage during the same time. Not a single one of them was sentenced to death. Not Klaus, a single one Klaus of them. Klaus Fuchs got out of jail in nine years. Well, yeah. the key about Klaus Fuchs is he was convicted of violating the British Official Secrets right. Act. But here's, this is very important as far as I'm concerned. The problem with the book The Brother is not so much in the first edition where you're just basically telling us what David Greenglass said. You then have, I don't know, how many, I, I can't do the math, but it be 10 years, 12 years, during which time Walter Schneer's book Final Verdict comes out. It uses some of the same sources you used for the brother, comes to a very new, rather dramatic conclusion. You review the book. You don't confront any of the arguments that Walter makes. You basically say, well, it might be true, it might not. Then in the paperback, you actually take one sentence from an interview with Morty Sobel and suggest that that completely refutes Walter. That's not due diligence, Sam. Well, I, first of all, I can't tell you the heat I took for giving Walter's book as uh, fair a review as I well, think I did. But one thing that also I think got left out of the paperback is the uh, is the um, was it Harvey Clare and, and John Haynes' book that suggests that Julius also recruited Russell McNutt, uh, which I don't think right, is which the got nothing to do either. with David. No, but it has to do with atomic espionage, which is another overt act showing he committed atomic espionage. So not every fact is there. We can you know write an encyclopedic thing. And maybe the two of us should write another volume uh, that, <laughs> that will would, include every that would be fantastic. every yeah. tree. <laughs> There'll well, be a lot of dead trees. Well, I mean, there, so uh, to, to split the difference here, because that's kind of what I'm here to do. I mean, I, I do think there is a possibility of getting a little too inside baseball. I do think, however, that this conversation uh, needs to potentially include this atomic spy. Uh, because in my opinion, they're not sentenced to death. They're not executed if they're not atomic spies. You know, I, 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 I have a hard time looking at everybody else who is convicted of espionage, looking at even others who are convicted of much, take the atomic side out of it. We know that Julius gave the proximity fuse. We know that we have a decent list of radar technology and aerospace technology. People who are much, much more detrimental to American national security who were either tried or convicted of espionage in the years since, and certainly during that time as well, did not get the death penalty. So well, can I interrupt? The no, reason sorry. for that is very straightforward. The death penalty was an investigative technique. Mm -hmm. The death penalty is the rack. The death penalty is a torture. It's an effort to say, talk or die. And by the way, we've got a gun to the head of the hostage, and we'll shoot her too if you don't talk. And that's, there's, a, there's a hearing, a very, very dramatic hearing before the Joint Congressional Committee of Atomic Energy, where they, in effect, get Congress to agree to allow the Atomic Energy Commission to declassify everything that Greenglass says at the trial in order to get a death sentence. Mm -hmm. And they say, 
you can't get a death sentence by having the man convicted of you know, finding out the layout of the buildings or the names of a bunch of scientists. Now, what's so interesting about both of those two things is that's the only thing they knew for sure that David Greenglass had told my father because that's the only thing that's in Venona. Right. Well, I mean, those are relatively important, although the Soviets got, could have gotten that information a hundred different ways, and they did get that information It's, it's fascinating because ways. the government was obviously, as you started off by saying in the first place, in 1949, the only way the Russians could have gotten the bomb was stealing it from us, according to most Americans, certainly most American politicians, if not most American scientists. The government was embarrassed, and how you deal with that embarrassment, you find a scapegoat. And the scapegoat is a bunch of spies who were working for the Russians. Now, obviously, not every communist was a spy, uh, but here were a bunch of communists who happened to be spies, linked them to atomic espionage, however you know, tangentially you can do it, blame it on them, uh, blame the Korean War on them, uh, and threaten them with execution unless they you know, come up with something else. Now, J. Edgar Hoover, for one, knew better didn't want to execute them because he knew that certainly in Ethel's case, she would be much more valuable to the Russians as a martyr than she ever would be as a spy. Uh, so he, he was one of the people who yeah, said... Except it, Hoover only recommended against the death sentence for my mother. Right. He for, was in no, favor right. of the death sentence for my father yes, and but, for but, but a mother leaving two orphan yes. boys was not a very good propaganda. And there was a well-known guy in the FBI who knew how weak the case was against my mother, and he probably was the one who suggested to Hoover to write that letter. But interestingly enough, when push came to shove, and it was June of 1953, when there was all this international pressure on Eisenhower to grant clemency, Hoover didn't say a word then. Neither he nor the other guy said, oh, by the way, you know, there's really not much against her. You, you would do well to give her clemency. Do you think Eisenhower knew the full story? Supposedly, the Venona material was kept from both Truman and Eisenhower. Right. And if I can ask a question, well, please. do you think your parents should have testified or could have? I don't think that my father could have pled guilty to half the crime. I think that, what do you do? You say, hey, I am guilty of spying, but I didn't do this bad stuff. They say, wait a minute, you just confessed to the crime. Here's a guy who says you did this. Now you're a, a spy. You're going to ask us to believe you against this guy? No, they would have been convicted anyway. Their only hope was to plead not guilty, stoutly deny the charges, hope for clemency, and then they knew that a lot of the case was based on perjury and falsehood, and sooner or later, when things calmed down, would have been an entirely different situation. They didn't think they were going to die. And when Greenglass testified, in fact, when he confessed, you know, these were little people, ordinary people, suddenly thrust on a world stage and had no idea, I think, of what the consequences ultimately would be. So when you say, you know, how could this guy have sent his sister to the electric chair, you know, that's a, a, not a very direct line. I don't think he had any concept of what he was doing. Should he have? Should he have thought it through? Should he have realized the next day you can't withdraw a confession? Sure, you'd like to think so. But I don't think, you know, anyone was, was thinking like that. And the, and the question you've been asked before, but I think for this audience it's a question that should be asked again, is do you think Julius could have cut a deal and said, I will let you know what you want to know, but Ethel goes free? 
Only if you... he had named all his confederates. That's the key. And but in doing so, your, your mom may have been let free. May have Maybe. May, well, sure. She'd already been convicted and been under sentence of death. But before that, perhaps. Even so when, when, they were... when they question him right from the beginning. Yeah. At that point, they have no idea that David Greenglass, what right. David Greenglass is saying. And they also try to remember, if we believe Walter Scheer, which I do, that my father was out of the loop for that period of time when the atomic espionage occurred, what did he do? You know, he helped an ally in the middle of World War II. Now, we also know that he resumed some activities later on, but the government didn't know that, and he could assume the government didn't know that. So his saying, you know, what have they got on me? So Manny Block thought he would have five or ten years. He right. confided that to a friend. This guy is in serious trouble. He could spend as much as five or ten years in jail. Could I ask a really a question that just occurred to me? I'm watching The Americans on TV, the spy thing. The, it's a Cold War spy thing, these, these two ordinary people in Washington working for the Russians. Their daughter, who is a teenager, realizes they're acting suspiciously, and they finally tell the daughter what they're doing. What would you have thought or said if your parents had told you what they were doing? If I were, when I was seven, Not seven I wouldn't but have understood they, it. No, but if you were 12, 13, 14. So they, they get clemency, and I'm visiting them in jail at the age of 13, and they tell me. No, if, if, you, if they were spying, if you were 14 in, in 1944 or something. That's such a hypothetical. I, know. I, doubt, I doubt I could even imagine okay, what I would do. Okay, that's fair. Well, so maybe, maybe a way to ask this question a little differently, not so hypothetical, is how much of their, they were true believers. I mean, both, both actually all four of them, both the Green Glasses and the Rosenbergs yeah, that's... were ideologues, were true believers. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, they, they truly believed in the utopian idea of communism. Did that rub off on you? I mean, I, I know now. Yeah, well, it rubbed off on me when I was a little kid. That's what I'm saying. Like, was that something that they still on you? As Robbie said in a, a documentary, called The Unquiet Death of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, which was our first you know, public testimony on film. Robbie said, we're, we're a product of our adoptive family. Mm -hmm. you know, I was 10 when I met Abel and Ann Mirapol. That was when I you know, was beginning to think and read. You know? So the, the old left that we got from Abel and Ann Mirapol was something that, you know, interestingly enough, when you get into the 1960s, and you see things like the Soviet Union misbehaving and not being, you know, as supportive of things you want to see, and you see SDS, which is a very active left-wing group on college campuses and the Communist Party people, these old fuddy-duddies, you, you, you begin to lose that old true believer self. And I had arguments with Abel and Ann, and I'm sure I would have had arguments with Ethel and Julius. And one of the things I tried to show in the book is why people became communists in the 1930s. Capitalism wasn't working right. for so many people. I mean, it wasn't, you know, a radical, crazy thing for people to and do. And, you know, if you're, if you're living on the Lower East Side in a cold water flat and all of your people are, um, you know, all of your friends are unemployed and you're seeing people evicted all the time. Well, and, and you're seeing anti-Semitism yeah. as well. Where there, that was technically against the law in the Soviet right. Union. So let me, let me ask, I, we're going to hand this over to the audience because I think they're going to have some really good questions. But I want to ask one final, final question to both of you. And this is about the idea that there's still some stuff out there that hasn't been released yet. There's certainly still pieces, I mean, there's probably, you know, 
acres full of files in, in now Russian archives that we'd love to get our hands on. But there are grand jury testimonies, including Greenglass and others, that will be released at some point. How do you think, or what are you looking forward to uh, in the next 10 years or so that might help to answer these broader questions? Michael probably has a better idea of what's in the Russian files. I know that I'm hoping within the next 10 days or 10 weeks, uh, I'm a party to a, a suit against the federal government to release grand jury minutes. We had a bunch of them released a couple of years ago in the interest of history. The government uh, agreed to release uh, the grand jury minutes of all the people who were no longer living in the Rosenberg case. And what was fascinating about that was the give and take between grand jurors and witnesses. The grand jurors were so hostile toward witnesses who either didn't want to testify or were afraid to testify saying, you know, don't you care about America? Do you want them to drop the bomb on us also? Uh, do you want to go to jail just like, you know, the other people who were accused? I mean, these were real hostile, aggressive, adversarial questions by the grand jurors. Forget about by the prosecutors. But I've sued now to get David Greenglass's uh, grand jury testimony released now that he has died. And it'll be very interesting to see how much that clashes with the testimony he uh, gave at trial. That is extremely important because Ruth Greenglass does not mention the 1945, September 1945 meeting. And that's supposed to be the crucial one. Mm -hmm. We need to see if David did the same thing or if he had already created that story. Because you have to understand, and this is, I'm, I'm sorry, Sam, but this is where I really think you failed to do due diligence. David Greenglass continued to stick to that story, even in the face of all that information from the book, The Haunted Wood. Well, maybe he mentions the December meeting, which would be even better. Well, I doubt that. I would doubt that because, you know, he doesn't mention the detonator and a whole a host of other things. But I have no idea why you think that I might know what's in the Russian archives. I don't read <laughs> Russian. I don't have any friends in Russia. Uh, but I would be anxious to have the Russians release it rather than do what they did, which is they had this guy, a Russian speaker, come in, take notes, and come out with the notes. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not real primary sources. Well, yeah, unfortunately, I mean, that they, the Russian archives are open for about 10 minutes mm -hmm. at the end of the Cold War, and then they closed up. Yeah, for a price. Can yeah. I just say, yeah. my brother and I actually wrote a letter. We, ha we had our senator, John Kerry, when he was senator master, write a letter to Russian intelligence, and they said, we're not going to release anything. And by the way, most intelligence agencies don't anyway. Yeah, that letter still lying around somewhere? Well, it's, you know, <laughs> it was sent from John Kerry's oh, office. <laughs> so we are going to open it up for questions now. Please wait for the microphone. Uh, we have two people with mics here. Uh, sorry, let's go down here at front. Can you let us know who you are, too? Oh, so. I'm, I'm Professor Arthur Eckstein from the University of Maryland. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I have seen uh, Ivy's uh, film, and one of the shocking things in Ivy's film is Morton Sobel lying to her face for 15 minutes. He didn't, there was no spying, nothing like that ever happened. That's doing damage to her, doing damage to you, uh, Michael, doing, uh, doing damage to the left, which... which uh, put lots and lots of effort into proving that the Rosenbergs were totally innocent, that, that people wasted lots and lots of time trying to show that. And there's Sobel lying to her 
an absolutely convincing manner. I was convinced uh, after, after I heard that. And then it turns out that none of what he said was true, that he was a spy, that, that, that Julius was involved in this thing with the jet airplane in 1948, stealing that material, and that doesn't have to do with an ally. How, does, how do you deal with that part of the issue that Sobel... And it's convincing. You should all see the thing. Sobel is, if you want to see somebody who's a really good liar, Sobel is totally convincing. You're, you're totally the, wrong. You saw an entirely different film than yeah, I did. Okay. First of all, I don't believe that Morty once said, I'm not guilty. What happened is that Ivy put some words in his mouth to that effect, and he sort of nodded. But the most important thing is he says, truth will set you free. Long pause. Maybe. And then the camera backs off, and you can see in his eyes that he is not telling the truth. I think Ivy's film is fabulous because it was in 2003. We didn't have any of this stuff. And with 2020 hindsight, you can see an internal polygraph in Morty Sobel. So I don't know where you got the idea that he... But there's he, no question he lied. Well, yeah, but yeah. he lied in his book. He lied in some speeches. I mean, the first time I ever... I wouldn't was blame on it on Ivy. Went on it, yeah. Right. But I think Ivy, by pulling the camera back and keeping it on him, after he says, truth will set you free, mm. maybe. And then he's got this look where you can just tell that he's sort of very close to it, but he doesn't want to. And, you know... There's no question that for years and years... I mean, it, was, it wasn't until 2008 before he finally came right. out and admitted... Right, that, but yeah. he did... It. There were all sorts of weird things. For yeah. example, in 1975, he was on, a, like, a two-hour radio show with, with, with Roy Cohn debating. He never once said he was innocent in the whole time. And you know what? Because... There's this internal polygraph that works with a lot of people. And when, I, I, when I interviewed him, uh, I just called him that day because that was the day the grand jury minutes were coming out. And, you know, I said I wanted to get his reaction to it, and he said that he had called Max Elitcher, who was the person who had given the most damning testimony the against only, him. The yeah. only right. testimony. And, in fact, I'm trying to get his grand jury testimony, too, because Max recently died. And... Uh, I said, why did you do that? And he said, well, you know, I'm in my 90s now, sort of let bygones be bygones. And I said, you know, Morty, what are you going to tell me next, that you were a spy? And he said, well, I don't know if I'd use that word. And then he starts telling me that he was a spy. And I was absolutely stunned. And I had asked him once on a television show, I said, if you had been a spy, would you admit it? And he said, which sort of backs up what Michael says, he said, I can't answer that. Uh, but this time, he did, for whatever reason, he did answer that. Well, and, and as you say, you know, how could he have, what motive could he have had in deceiving people, including his family, for all of those years, for decades and decades and decades? He paid his dues, he went to jail, he did hard time, uh, but... but all of those years deceiving people about who, whether he said it explicitly or not, the presumption was yes, still yes, that no, he was innocent. Now, let me say that um, 
Morty had actually started talking to Walter and Miriam Schneer. Correct. You know that, yes. right? Yes. I mean, so you because the first thing I did was call Walter yeah. and said, "Is Morty crazy or not?" You broke the story on the front page of the New York Times, but Walter and Miriam had hours of testimony yes. from Morty. They were hoping to scoop it, but you know, you beat them to it. You know, New York Times usually trumps independent journalism. <laughs> All those years I spent working at the Daily News yeah. and resenting the New York Times, <laughs> you know, I'm entitled to a little... Yeah. Uh, now you're the man. Right. Uh, right over here. My name is Stephen Shore. Two qu uh, on a personal note, my mother knew Ethel. That's another um, story. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Nicaragua Village. Mm. Um, the two, my two questions, things that not talked about here, was there uh, judicial misconduct at the trial? In other words, if... if the counsel for your parents had known about the cooperation between the judge and the prosecutor. Could the case have been thrown out? And my second question is often said, the party really wanted your parents dead because they were more value to the party as martyrs, regardless of whether they were innocent or not, and uh, not heard a convincing refutation of this. I did, have, by accident, um, I used to had a client in Union Square, and in 1978, happened by chance to walk by a party rally where your parents were referred to as martyrs of the working class, and it seemed a status incompatible with any innocence if they were, in fact, officially martyrs of the working class. Well, the first, uh, let's see, let me go back to the the the, 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 the judge. The judge. Yes. Very short answer, yes. There's tremendous documentation on that. We could go into great details by, if we wanted by to. By those standards of the day, certainly by today's standards, but by well, the, the standards then as well? Well, the, the, um, for example, he sits on an appeal for a new trial based on new evidence. The FBI briefs him about that new evidence before it even comes before him. Okay. In, 19, uh, in February of 1953, when there's a stay of execution, he talks to the Justice Department about expediting things to make sure that it gets to the Supreme Court for the stay is overturned so that it doesn't last through the summer. He's a member of the prosecution team from beginning to end. In fact, there was a play written mm -hmm. in which the character of the judge is also the character of the prosecution, which well, is absolutely and, and true. He asks almost as many questions at the trial right. mm -hmm. as do the lawyers. I yes. mean, he's essentially, when the lawyers aren't doing what they need to do, he interjects himself. Well, he's as a Budinsky, period. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, second one. There is absolutely no evidence anywhere up the line in the Communist Party that they wanted them dead. There is evidence that the Communist Party was scared out of their wits when they were arrested, and so for almost two years, it was Julius and Ethel who? So I have a story. Uh, I met somebody at a cousin's wedding who was a friend of my mother's in Knickerbocker Village who was in the Communist Party. And as soon as they were arrested, she was ordered to have nothing to do with the case. And a member, a little head of the Civil Rights Congress, a very well-known public communist, went to David Allman after David Allman had helped start the committee. The committee was started by non-communists. And all the arguments that the committee was a communist front is absolute nonsense. Um, and he was told, you really should disband the committee. It will do harm. And David said, these people are comrades. How can you say that? And the answer was, in a revolution, some people have to be sacrificed. 
But the point was the Communist Party didn't want to have anything to do with this. They were already on trial for violating the Smith Act. And their view was, we don't want to be associated with spies. In fact, the historian who probably was a communist told me, it's sort of like the NAACP in the 1930s used to refuse to defend blacks who were accused of rape because it looked so bad to be accused of rape. So the Communist Party didn't get involved until 1952. And you can almost see it. It's almost like a light goes off. Because I remember when I was a kid, I was reading this Sing Out magazine, which is a musical magazine. Nothing about my parents' case. And then all of a sudden, November 1952, bing, cover story. And this was all over the place. So I would argue that the Communist Party were scared. Once it was clear that my parents would not confess, they felt that they could then defend them. But I think the defense, and certainly the committee's defense, and all the non-communists who were involved, plenty of them, you know, Orthodox rabbis here, a bunch of ministers here, ordinary people, people who just opposed the death penalty. Well, the Pope. The Pope. Yeah, yeah, the Pope was hardly a communist. <laughs> well, the one now might be. The, but that's oh, yeah. <laughs> right. there, there is no question that by today's standards, uh, there was improper judicial conduct. Absolutely no question. Rap here? Well, I, I just want to make the point, back in the 50s, the judicial system in our country was totally different than it is today, and the expectations were different. I mean, you can't expect the standards that we have today, which, are, which only developed after the 50s, but I, were applied, applied back then. I think and even... There was a lot more close working between the Justice Department and the... The, the courts. In fact, Justice Department used to administer the courts appropriations and things and, and, you know, at that time. I think that may be true, but even by those lower standards, I think there were violations by Judge Kaufman. I think you know, that's a given. I'd say by today's standards, there is no question. Well, here's a, I mean, one thing he did, I mean, he wasn't under oath, but he definitely committed perjury from the bench when he said, I have refrained from asking, asking. the government for a recommendation. Right. He asked right. He asked the prosecutor. He had the prosecutor go to Washington and talk to the top officials there. And what was interesting is that there was debate, as we know. And when the prosecutor called the judge at a party the night before the sentencing and said, you know, there's disagreement here in Washington as to who gets the death penalty and who doesn't, the judge says, okay, don't make any recommendation. So then he gets on the bench. He says, because of the seriousness of this crime, and the lack of precedence, I don't know what the word precedence means even, uh, I've refrained from asking the government for a recommendation. Lie, lie, lie. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say more. There's a piece of a document that suggests that somebody talked to him before the trial began to make sure he'd be willing to give the death sentence because the death sentence was, I remind you again, an investigative technique. Right. I mean, the, the, the 800-pound grill in the room, and the question is, if he was a 60-year-old Gentile and not a young Jewish judge, would the death sentence have happened? Well, I think if he were not a young, ambitious yes. judge. Okay. Yes. You've got to remember that he had already established a great rapport with J. Edgar Hoover. He had been part of a Justice Department study of, uh, of the FBI. They became friends. They wrote each other letters on a first-name basis. Uh, and this was going to make his career. He was going all the way to the Supreme Court with this case. He lobbied for the case. And he spent the rest of his life, he became a very good friend of Arthur Sulzberger, the publisher of the New York Times, and spent the rest of his life trying to make sure that the Rosenberg 
case would not be in the lead of his obituary. And finally, Arthur said to him, Irving, what do you think is going to be in the lead of your obituary? And sure enough, it was. It and the nice that, thing is, it was there before he even died. So the Times Square ticker. Yeah. The, uh, That's right. <laughs> Rosenberg judge dies of the Times Square ticker. Okay, what else? Uh, all the way in the back, uh, man is coming over to you. Thank you very much. You were raised by the uh, Maripoles and not the not uh, Julius or Ethel's side of the family. Did that cause resentment in you, or did you at a time feel anger? And what was your relationship going forward? Because you weren't raised by the Rosenbergs. You were raised by the Maripoles. Did that cause any feelings of anger or isolation or anything like that well, for you? Well, uh, I had nothing to do with the Greenglass side of the family from the time my parents were arrested. So the anger there was, was palpable. I mean, I, I, I don't like to admit it because it's, you know, it's, it's not charitable. But when my grandmother, Tessie, died, all I did was say, oh, good. Um, and I had visions of, wouldn't it be great to find David Greenglass and stand near him and yell as loud as, remember, this is a 10-year-old, yell as loud as I can, ex-con, ex-con, and he'd be scared, you know. But, you know, later on, and this is very, this actually relates to one of your issues, Vince. I mean, I never wanted to physically go, even though I learned his name, even though for years Robbie and I denied that we knew his name, I learned his name, and I could have found him. But I never wanted to. And in fact, you see in the film, in Ivy's film, mm -hmm. Ivy found the house and he said, maybe we should go. I said, not me. Because what would be the point? Right. You know, he proved in his long interviews with Sam that he's still got some smarts. He knows what to admit, like the typing, and what not to admit, like the December meeting and a whole host of other things that if I had time, and I, I will be doing this in writing, uh, to pick at what I think are the failings of Sam's book. I mean, we. We've been a lot nicer to each other than we might have been. But I really do believe, and I'll say it, you know, because I want to get this out there, that this book in some ways fails. He had a golden opportunity with 50 hours of green glass tapes. And all he had to do was look at, particularly Walter's book for the paperback at least, or look at the stuff in The Haunted Wood. Well, by he, then it was too late to but, talk to but, David. Yeah, but when, when you wrote the book, you use the haunted wood. And there's all sorts of stuff in the haunted wood that directly contradicts what David was still saying. And you didn't mention it. You just left it out as if it didn't exist. In fact, I didn't realize how significant it was until I read Walter's book. So, I mean, I really think you that... See? Yeah. Well, I never read the haunted wood until I read Walter's really? book. But you had. And I think that, you know, unfortunately. So we, 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 we thank Sam for getting Greenglass to talk. I don't thank you for sharing the money with him, because if you hadn't shared the money with him, then we might have been having this debate 10 years ago. I would have been willing to. But the thought that, and I didn't know that he wasn't getting any of the extra royalties, the thought that by generating publicity for the book, we might actually put money in David's pocket was enough to make Robbie and me puke. So we decided to but say... But without that, he wouldn't have talked. Yeah, well, given it up, you know. With, now, David's dead, no problem. Let's take the gloves off and let's have at it. Well, so now, so now that you know that he didn't make a dime other than the original yeah, advance, if, if I'd known and that, that he's long dead, mm -hmm. I mean, is there, other than your specific problems, and they are significant problems, uh, what, what is the review of the brother? Well, I think he failed to do due diligence. He is supposed to, as a historian, here's a very simple thing. Almost every, none of your quotes from The Haunted Wood are footnoted. So that I'm but, the... But what about, 
Yeah. Well, I Tree, mean, really, trees and important sequoias, maybe. But what about the fact that he admitted to lying about the single most incriminating evidence that sent your mother to the election? To me, to me that, that yes, is it the is. Your mother was convicted and executed because of something that in this book David Greenglass admitted that he lied about. Yes. And never admitted before. He never admitted before, but the contradiction where between his grand jury testimony, which was pre-discussed in August of 1950, where he explicitly denied under oath in front of Miles Lane that my mother was involved in this, that directly contradicted his trial testimony. We knew that in 1975. I was on Good Morning America with uh, one of those people, and I, I brought it out right then. The, the, I admit, getting him to go on 60 Minutes with the fake beard and to say it, that is crucial. No question, because it gives, gives Ivy a nice thing. But Sam... That's David hyping the book. You still have a responsibility to the rest of us. But I I will be perfectly honest in that we've, if you've been to the museum, we have an atomic spies room that's 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 been changed recently. Can't wait to see it. it, it, Yeah, it's it's been at least altered because we we purposely set out that there is no direct evidence that links Ethel Rosenberg to. So so she doesn't have the code name Ethel anymore. So no, well, we so. Yes. Sorry, so, Vince. But that, it's not Vince's fault. It's not, I mean, it's really not, I mean, it, 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 if it wasn't for that admission that she, the typing was a lie, we wouldn't have the kind of confidence mm. to say, we are a museum that has 650,000 people that come through it every year. We need to put something on the wall that is definitive. We would not have the confidence to say, there is no evidence that links Ethel Rosenberg directly to espionage on our wall without that specific now that now, you know you said, could argue that Ruth was telling the truth she might have been in which case that is evidence for the typing all David admitted is that he never saw Ethel type but well, if David had told the truth then Ethel I don't think would have been convicted well and remember David actually says he thinks Ethel was the one that, I mean Ruth, Ruth was right. actually the one that did the typing which may in fact be true or maybe there's no typing because his handwriting right. is not illegible Wait, well, I don't get why not why not, if you're the defense attorney why not put some of his handwriting in front of the jury and say it's pretty good right I mean that was the whole idea was that she had to type it up because he wrote in chicken scratch but every piece of evidence says that he had impeccable handwriting as a, as a kind of an engineer yep. impeccable handwriting All right all the way in the back there's a question Oh, it's going to be one of those. Yeah. Mm. Oh, come on, Vince. Uh, hi, I'm Mark Stout. I uh, teach at Johns Hopkins University School of Arts and Sciences, and I'm Vince's predecessor as a uh, museum historian. So this question is for Michael. First off, I think this was fabulous uh, for all of you. Um, but my question is for Michael, and I think I heard you saying, maybe I misunderstood, um, that you were sort of part of the new left. Um, certainly you were known to them at any rate. And I'm curious how the fact that you were, you know, the son of, of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, how, how you know, people treated you, or were, were you a celebrity? Were you a representative of something vile and disgusting? How, how, did, you know, the, how did the people of the SDS kind of world respond to you and, and I suppose, your brother? Uh, 90% of them didn't give me a hint that they knew who I was. Um, and my close friends who I had told, you know, I was just me. And uh, my activities were pretty, pretty la- uh, tame. I uh, you know, called talk radio shows, wrote letters to the editor of newspapers, walked around with picket signs. Um, but my 
internal politics was very much SDS. And in fact, with 2020 hindsight, I think some government informant actually went and investigated me in Madison because he, this guy came and he said he was taking a survey about where people you know, went out to eat. And I said, oh, I go to A&W Root Beer. And we talked for 40 minutes, and by the time the discussion was over, he was asking me about my politics. Hmm. And I was so naive, I said, oh, that's kind of an interesting discussion. 2020 hindsight, he was probably checking up on me for the FBI. I have an FBI file, almost everything in it is blacked out. Oh. Except some incorrect information. Well, that might, that's something that might come out in the future that might be sure. interesting. So A&W. I'll start the FOIA request now so when I'm 80, it'll finally be released. Anything else? We have time for maybe one more. Let's make it count. <laughs> there it is, right there. Well, the issue of the lawyer, of your parents' lawyer, was raised. I was wondering how good of a lawyer do you think he, you know, what kind of a job did he do for your parents? Was it good enough? <laughs> well, obviously not. But remember, remember, in those days, you didn't have automatic access to grand jury testimony. The only thing you could do is you could ask questions about what somebody told the grand jury, and then if there was a hint of contradiction between what the person told the grand jury and what the person had just said, then the judge goes and looks at it and decides whether it's admissible. Nowadays, they always have access to grand jury testimony. It would have been a piece of cake to do that. I'll tell you one thing that he did wrong that was interesting. It's in Morty Sobel's book. When Morty Sobel's wife, Helen, was called before the grand jury, his lawyers got a protective order which basically said, if she's a potential target, you have to tell us. And so they never asked her any questions. Hmm. If they had gotten a protective order for my mother, then right. there would have been an interesting hmm. question. Her grand jury testimony, which basically consisted of taking the Fifth Amendment, was used at the trial to make it appear she was lying. At the trial, she says, I'm not guilty. But she's asked the same question at the grand jury, and she takes the Fifth Amendment. And so they say, well, was that true, that it would incriminate you? And the judge and the prosecutor go after her for probably 20 minutes. Yep. And she's saying, well, it's neither true nor untrue. It's just that you don't want to testify. Even Manny Block raises a really good objection at that point. But it, it didn't do any good. And it's important to keep in mind that there weren't good lawyers rushing forward to defend the Rosenbergs, just as there weren't great scientists rushing forward to testify as to whether the information that David Greenglass had presented was valid or not. But do you think, I mean, this again is a total hypothetical, if, if Bill Kunstler or Alan Dershowitz or someone of that ilk were defending them, don't you think they would have had a much better shot? Perhaps. Perhaps, but remember the temper of the times. Yep. Remember the temper of the times. The, David Greenglass and Harry Gold were completely credible. Mm -hmm. And all my parents could do was say no, no, no. Well, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Sam Roberts and Mike Miracle for your time here tonight. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Hey, listeners. 
We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. Now. 